we're continuing in our study in the book of Daniel. Today, we're going to look at God's wisdom and power. Daniel 2, and we're going to take the first half, approximately, of chapter 2 today. Do any of you have recurring dreams? I do. It doesn't happen every night. It may, may happen every so often, perhaps months or even a couple of years in between having this dream, but I have had it numerous times in my life. <laughs> the dream goes something like this. I'm backstage, there are lots of props, there's scenery, there are other actors, and somebody starts pushing me toward the center of the stage behind the closed curtain, and they say, two minutes to curtain. And I look around and I say, but wait, I, I haven't even looked at my script yet. <laughs> and they say, oh, that's all right, you'll pick up on the clues from other people, just, just go with it. And then the next thing I know, the curtain starts to open and the spotlight hits me, center stage. <laughs> Scary. Now, fortunately for me, at least not yet anyway, this dream has not been prophetic. I really pray that it doesn't become prophetic. <laughs> In my case, it's probably my overactive imagination kicking into gear because I know there's something kind of big that I should be preparing for coming down the line and that I don't feel like I'm quite there yet, which means I need to start doing my homework. But God has indeed used dreams, and he does so very often in the Old Testament, as we're going to see today. And he uses those dreams to impart his wisdom, to display his power, to include those who lack both wisdom and power, including kings like King Nebuchadnezzar II. These things we will see are very vital and important because God uses this dream to involve Daniel, our prophet, our God-given Israel person, the guy who was sent there in exile in the first wave of people who were taken after Israel had fallen. Paul's New Testament words really ring true around the setting for today. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's a metaphor, of course, because there's no weakness in God, and he's not foolish. But even if there were to be, even the weakest part of God, if in his tiny little finger, he would have thousands of times more power than any human. So that's Paul's way of saying, God is so much greater than we can comprehend. And that's certainly true in, D in Daniel's case, as we're going to see about King Nebuchadnezzar. You're looking right here at a photo if you are looking on a computer or a tablet or a phone, and you can see this picture. It's the Babylonian gate, the Ishtar gate. It was the eighth gate to the inner city of Babylon in what we would now consider Iraq. This gate was constructed in about 575 BC. And if you've been keeping tabs on dates, you would know that that puts Daniel in Babylon at this time, which means that this would have been constructed during the time Daniel and his buddies were in exile in Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar, this great builder, and this great leader who's trying to show his greatness in some of these building projects, including this gate, was constructing something that would create awe in the minds of those people who were entering the city through this that was at the north end of the city. It was a grand walled procession leading into the city, and the walls were finished in bright, colorful, glazed bricks. These are actually bricks that were taken from an archaeological dig and German archaeologists relocated these, and what they didn't find, they were able to replicate so that they could reconstruct this part of the gate. 
It was a massive processional, this huge road into the city, and it all looked like this. They depicted different animals and gods as well in relief. And think about the scale of this thing, 50 feet high. The original foundations went 40 feet more feet underground for a total of 95 feet of this huge structure. When people would enter the city through this gate, you can imagine that they probably would have thought, wow, King Nebuchadnezzar must be some kind of powerful dude to be able to have this built. Joy and I and our family actually got to see this gate in person back in the year 2000 because we were visiting uh, a brother-in-law who was stationed in Berlin at the time. And we went to the Pergamon Museum in this huge hall where this is displayed. And we got to see it in person up close. You can see by the people in the picture that it's massive. And when you stand there personally and see how many thousands of bricks were used in making this thing, you recognize that it was quite the accomplishment. So by the world standards, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was like the man. People were thinking he is so powerful and he's so wise. And yet because of God's standards and what we just read, nah, Nebuchadnezzar did not have it going on and he was not wise at all. In fact, we find out that he was so drunk with power <laughs> that his lust for more power and control revealed just how foolish he really was. Here's a brief outline for what we're going to look at today, breaking this up into three basic chunks. The first chunk, verses 1 through 16, we're going to outline the problem. Then we're going to see the petition or the prayer that was necessary so that that problem could get solved. And then the praise that resulted because there was a natural outpouring of worship when God actually did solve the problem for Daniel and answered his prayer. And then the result of that which is just a reiteration of all this wonderful thing that we see growing out of Daniel, which is so artistically put together that we can see a reiteration of the three basic things that he's saying all the way throughout this chapter. God's power, wisdom, and revelation are all revealed and celebrated. So let me read verses 1 through 16 as we look at the problem, which is nobody could tell the king his dream. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, or Chaldeans in some translations, as we talked about. They were the people from southern Babylon who were specially trained in divination to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And in some translations, it's more accurate to say, or what the dream was. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Uh, tell your servants the dream and then we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and I'll have your houses turned into piles of rubble. <laughs> but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And then the king answered, 
I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king. <laughs> there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, great and mighty, had, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is just too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar definitely had demanded the impossible. The so-called wise men, they would also be called magi. You may relate that to Luke chapter 2 since we've just come through the Advent season. A Persian shortened form of the word magic or magician. They protested to the king that he was asking them to do something absolutely impossible, humanly speaking. And they were right about that. They were 100% correct. No human could do that. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, wasn't going to first tell them the dream. He wanted them to actually tell him, what did I dream specifically? That's how I'll know that you have the kind of magical wisdom in order to interpret it correctly. And of course, you can see from the passage that we just read that those guys didn't have it. <laughs> the king must have thought that if these priests and magicians and diviners and astrologers were so gifted with clairvoyance, they ought to be able to tell him what he had dreamed. I can't... I can't let this concept of clairvoyance go without telling this little thing that I heard one time. Two clairvoyants passed each other on the sidewalk. The first one said to the other, you're fine. How am I? Okay, I'm just giving you time to laugh that one off. The Chaldeans, or astrologers or diviners, these people that would look to the relationships of the stars or perhaps spots on livers, as we discussed before, asked the king, to tell them what the dream was so that they would have something to go on, something to base their interpretation on. But he refused. He was adamant and angry. We have seen other leaders with paranoia exhibiting really unwise behavior when their power was threatened. Just recently, in fact, like 9.30 a.m. today. You may have been thinking about some other leader recently, but I'm talking about King Saul because we've been talking about King David in our growth encounter. Any relationship to any other leader is strictly coincidental. Well, we see this kind of paranoia in Nebuchadnezzar. He was afraid that these so-called wise magicians were trying to pull one over on him. And he even told them, you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, it says in one translation in verse 9 of chapter 2. Well, the wise men, of course, are trying to buy time, and they're asking a second time, maybe he'll relent if we ask him. So they said, please, can you just tell us the dream so that we'll know what we're supposed to interpret? 
But Nebuchadnezzar was willing to go to great lengths to ensure that nobody would conspire against him and steal his power. He didn't want these wise men manipulating the information or putting out some false report about what they thought he wanted to hear or what they wanted to manipulate his words to do because they didn't want false scenarios. So he just wanted somebody he could trust that would actually interpret the dream for him. And he thought the only way he could trust them is if they knew the dream. No pressure, Daniel. <laughs> These magi protested and said, there's no one on earth who can do what you're asking. They were absolutely correct. No human being could do what the king was asking. And as they continued to protest, the wise men reiterated to the king that what he was asking was impossible. And then they were half right because they said, no one can reveal what you have dreamed except the gods, small g. Well, that's true. No human could interpret the dream. That's the half part that they got right. But what they didn't get right was, and it's not the gods, small g, but Yahweh, Daniel's and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's gods. God, the God, the God who created the universe. He's the only one who could actually accurately know what the dream was and be able to interpret it. So we have something going on here that sets up a possibility that Daniel may be used of God in a powerful way. And he uses two weapons that we might not have considered that are very powerful weapons because they're not the world's weapons. The Bible tells us that we're not supposed to use the world's weapons. He uses tact and wisdom. That's what he uses against irrational anger. We saw that this morning in our growth encounter too. I keep seeing these wonderful parallels and Steve, I just wanted to unmute myself and say, foreshadowing, you're gonna hear more about this in the 11 o'clock worship hour. We can see this in John chapter eight, verses one through 11, about Jesus, when somebody brought and dumped a woman in front of him when he was teaching in the temple courts. And there were these teachers of the law and the Pharisees who allegedly had caught this woman in the act of adultery. And they're humiliating her by putting her on display in front of Jesus in this public place. And they say to Jesus, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? And Jesus uses these weapons, tact and wisdom, strategically. He's so peaceful. He doesn't get irate. He doesn't stand up and confront them and look them in the face. He just kneels down and starts writing in the dirt with his finger. And they're looking at the dirt and they're murmuring and they're looking at one another. And then he straightens up and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And then he bent down again and kept writing in the dirt. And people have speculated, what in the world was he writing that caused the people to react in the way that they did? Well, did he write out the address to the actual law they were referring to? Did he put D-E-U-T period 2222? Because if they knew the scroll well, and they would have, then all he had to do would probably be pointing them in the direction of what the law actually said, because what the law really said was, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. Oh, suddenly they're forced to say, if we are legalistic and trying to adhere to the law, then that means two people are really on trial here today and two would have to be stoned. 
That may be what he wrote. We don't know for sure. Maybe he was writing individual sins that he knew were in the hearts of the people standing there looking over his shoulder at that moment. We don't know. What we do know is he was using tact and wisdom and supernatural power to de-escalate a volatile situation. And in so doing, Jesus humanizes this poor woman who's being put on display, and he protects her, saves her life, in fact. And he does so without resorting to violence. Tact and wisdom are powerful, far more than we give them credit for, I think. And then when those who had gathered around Jesus started walking away one by one until pretty soon no one was there anymore, and he turned to the woman, and Jesus says, so where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. So go and sin no more. So Jesus shows how it's possible for us to value fellow human beings who are created in the image of God. That gives them worth just by being created in his image. We can remind them of their value to God who loves them and protects them. And we can do so without condoning sin. All in the same time. We don't have to shun people who are those sinners. We can embrace them, protect them even, show them that they have value without condoning their sin. And Jesus did all of that magnificently because that sin that she was engaged in would devalue her more. So when God's wisdom and grace are combined with a tactful, peaceful approach, these weapons are incredibly powerful. Well, Daniel applied these peaceful weapons in his situation as well. He applied the same God-given wisdom and tact with the commander of the guard who had been sent to look for these guys, because as you'll recall, since he was a part of the wise men contingent, all those people who are being trained in all this gift of discernment and divination, that means that Daniel and his buddies were also on the chopping block. It would mean their heads were on the line as well. And so he's thinking, well, how can I de-escalate this situation? And he just asks the commander, why would the king give such a harsh command? And he explains the situation to him, at which point Daniel says to Arioch, okay, well, let me just go in and talk to the king. How could he do that? Why wouldn't he expect that the king would fly into a rage and take off his head right there? Because we can learn at the latter part of chapter one that Daniel and his friends had already impressed Nebuchadnezzar really highly because it says that he thought that Daniel and these guys were 10 times more wise than the other magicians that he had seen in the court. So when the other diviners told the king what the king didn't want to hear, when they whined and complained and said, yeah, we can't do that. You're trying to get us to do the impossible. He didn't react too well to that, but because Daniel had wisdom intact, he was able to go in and he had earned the king's favor. And I'm sure he was able to be very diplomatic in saying, oh, king, would you be so kind as to give us a little bit more time so that we can, in fact, try to interpret this dream for you? And that's exactly what the king did. So here's the petition, the prayer. Daniel enlists a prayerful support of a bunch of his friends, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me read this section to you, verses 17 through 19a. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the Hebrew names, what had happened? He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. 
that night. The secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Daniel knew what he had to do, but he wasn't going to do it alone. He needed some other prayer warriors to petition God on his behalf. And that's exactly what he did. Um, we need to be praying for Scott Peterson and his family. They're actually at the graveside doing the burial today for Scott's mother-in-law, Yvonne's father-in-law. Yvonne's father, Dave, passed away this week, as many of you know. But Scott told me something yesterday, last evening, at the funeral itself. And he's not one to uh, give public testimony because he's a quiet fella. But I'm sure he wouldn't mind me passing along the fact that he said, you know, it's at times like these when I recognize this is why I go to church. This is why I'm surrounded by a community of faith. This is why I read the Bible. This is why I go to worship every week. This is why I do all the things that we do as a community of faith. Because right now I've had to dig as deep as I've ever dug. Because his own mother, who's 77, fell two weeks ago and broke three vertebrae. She's in the hospital. Scott's father is in at home, but he has dementia. So Scott and his brother have to take turns staying with the father at their father's house. It's a mess. I mean, his, his whole world has been just shaken up. But he said, I felt such support. And because I have something that to dig deep into, I have that foundation. And so I'm making it a day at a time. But I realize that I really need the prayers of the people that are supporting us right now. That's why we need each other. I can think back to probably a dozen times when I've been so overwhelmed and facing something that felt so humanly impossible in my lifetime that I had to reach out, was begging people that were in my inner circle to intercede on my, on my behalf, to pray for me, to pray for God's wisdom and power, which I didn't feel I had, either one of them at the time. And God has been very gracious because he supported us and my family at times when I've desperately needed that extra help. And that's what Daniel does. Enlists these people that he knows will go to his uh, defense and that they will petition on his behalf to God. Let me share a, a brief story that I thought was pretty powerful because it talks about the power that we need and, and we can tap into as Christians when we feel like we've run up against everything and we've done all we can, humanly speaking, and it's still not working. There's a young lady by name by the name of Christy Borthwick and uh, Christy's dad had found himself in need of persistent prayer. He started to exhibit a little bit of an interest in spiritual matters one time because of a Billy Graham crusade, but he wouldn't quite let go and soften his heart and take that step over the line of faith to say, yeah, I need to trust Christ. In fact, the opposite was true. After he had that one little glimpse, that one moment when it looked like maybe he was open, he closed his heart again and became belligerent. He would talk about the hypocrisies of people in church. He said, that church is just filled with hypocrites. And he would talk about the parts of the Bible that just seemed too impossible to believe. His daughter, Christy, managed to talk one time about heaven and hell. And they were going to try to approach that subject gingerly with her dad. He got really angry. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. He got so mad this time that he said, if there is a God who allows people to go to hell, then I don't want to go to heaven to live with him. I choose hell. Ooh, that's not the kind of declaration you want to hear from one of your relatives, especially not your dad. Well, a few years later, Christy's 47-year-old brother died suddenly. And Christy hoped that just maybe this tragic event 
would open a crack in the door so that her dad would start to recognize, I really need to think about mortality. My life is not going to last forever. Maybe I should start thinking about spiritual matters. So she said, Dad, wouldn't you like to receive God's free gift of salvation? It's eternal life that we're talking about, and it's totally free. Her dad responded angrily, eternal life is a myth. There is no heaven and there is no hell. Just put me in the grave. The grave is all there is. Well, you can imagine that Christie's heart was just, just broken over those kinds of words. But Christie, in her faith, was just as stubborn in a good way as her father. And so she started enlisting prayer warriors and she sent out all these people emails and saying, let's connect through a group email together and I'm just gonna beg you to concertedly pray regularly for my father starting right now. That list grew to over 500 people. Two weeks later, after this group had been petitioning God daily on her dad's behalf, his heart began to soften. He gave a subtle indication that he was interested in a relationship with God. And Christy said, we invited our dad to pray a simple prayer. We said, dad, just say, Jesus, have mercy. And he responded. Christy almost couldn't believe what she was hearing. For the first time in her life, she heard her father pray, Jesus, have mercy on my soul. His countenance changed. His striving was over. God had finally answered Christie's persistent prayer of 29 years. Her dad went to heaven two weeks later. <laughs> I got to preach a funeral last night for Yvonne Peterson's dad. And I was able to say with confidence, Dave is in heaven right now. Why? because he trusted this same God, Yahweh, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, the God who sent his only son because he loved us that much to die in our place so that we could be reconciled with him. Dave's in heaven. Nothing's gonna take away his joy now, as the Bible says. And I was so struck by that, struck with this juxtaposition of somebody like Dave who had lived years walking with Christ and Christy Borthwick's dad, who waited until the very last minute. And yet God will welcome both evenly because God is just that gracious. I thought, I thought that was worth sharing. Well, Daniel involved his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to use their Babylonian names, in petitioning God to show Daniel that dream, and he did. God answered the prayer. So that erupted into natural worship. Just a worship service resulted from that. Let's look at that. Daniel praised the God of heaven for his power, for his wisdom, and for his revelation. Verses 19b through 23, let me read that to you. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed 
to us what the king demanded. Daniel praised the God of heaven for revealing power, wisdom, and revelation. All three of those things are seen in this passage. Let's look at each one of them briefly. God's power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Just in case you've ever wondered, and perhaps you might have even wondered recently, is God truly in control? The answer to that, based on Daniel's words and what God did for Daniel, is yes. Just like somebody can steer the course of water through a canal to go out onto a, a field that's in desperate need of water, God can direct the course of kings and rulers and set up others in their place if he chooses to do so. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. He can reveal deep and mysterious things in ways that we just can't comprehend. I've shared this story years ago. Um, it's worth sharing again, and it fits here. I remember my mother telling me this story after my sister, who's a little bit older than I am, had gone out on a date. It was a date to go out to eat after a choir concert because she was singing in her college choir. And they were out until all hours of the early morning, and she didn't get in until about 2.30 a.m. But my mother, who had fallen fast asleep, was awakened by a strange dream. She saw a railroad crossing and blinking red lights, and she saw this railroad train zipping past a car. And it startled her, and she woke up in a cold sweat, and she thought, maybe God's prompting me to pray for some reason. She says, I felt like I needed to pray, but I didn't even know what to pray for. But I prayed and I said, Lord, I'm praying for whatever it is you need for me to pray for. And you know, because you have a Holy Spirit who can interpret even the things I don't understand. And then she fell back to sleep. My sister got home, crawled into bed. My mother woke up the next morning, got my sister up, asked her how the concert had gone and how the date had gone afterwards. And she said, I would have been home a little bit earlier, but I had to get rerouted because there was a problem on a train track on the way home and I had to drive a different way home. Still didn't get home till 2.30. I'm sure that I left probably at 1.30, so it wouldn't have taken me that long. But anyway, I'm sorry I got home so late. <laughs> My mom was just kind of shaking her head thinking, wow. God reveals deep and mysterious things because he knows what lies hidden in darkness. Sometimes, even while we're fast asleep, gratefully, he never sleeps, and so he's always at work. And then we have God's revelation. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Revelation is what happens when God makes his thoughts known to men and women. God, through the Holy Spirit, who is God the Spirit, is the person of God who makes these thoughts known. That's important for us to understand because of the triune God, the Trinity. Paul wrote, no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. So when God is revealing something like he revealed to Daniel, that's God talking. That's God's spirit revealing what's on God the Father's heart. It's all God. That's how God was able to work through the prophets in the Old Testament. He's choosing to work a little more differently, especially because he spoke his final word through Jesus Christ. And now we have the written revelation through the word of God in the New Testament. But we know also that all these Old Testament prophecies that were just as inspired as the New Testament pointed to the New Testament and that they all flesh out for us what this Messiah means and what it can mean to us if we'll trust him. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.20, 21 says this, 
No prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. They can't just make things up. <laughs> no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God, which is why in the Old Testament, when we read some of these prophecies, they'll say, thus saith the Lord. It's because they were God's words being spoken through his agents in the earth. Well, when Jesus came along as prophesied in the Old Testament, he had something to say to his apostles in the upper room just before he was crucified, buried, and re resurrected. What he said was astounding when you think about it. Listen to what Jesus says to them. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it just now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He'll bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. This is a pretty big deal when you think about it, because what Jesus was promising to these apostles was huge. He was saying that the spirit of God is going to reveal them the truth of God, that Jesus had been living out as God the Son. He'd been proclaiming this truth to them. And as the Spirit inspired and engaged these apostles in sharing these things by writing them down, here's what he's doing. He's authorizing these apostles to write what became for us the New Testament. Whoa. <laughs> Let that sink in just a minute. That's a big deal. That's how we can read the New Testament with these eyes that can say, I'm trusting the New Testament to reveal to us the very words of God, because that's what they are. Since the people who wrote the New Testament were given these truths through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we need to really exalt and hold high a view of the Bible. Well, here's something else that I thought was really astounding, and I really appreciated the fact that uh, Steve Pipe had sent some of the folks that are going to be involved in the praise team when we head back into our part-time Sunday afternoon live worship on March 7th. He gave us a bonus song, a worship song, which had to do about Advent. It really had to do with Advent, and it would have been a really good Christmassy song, but it also applies to us right now. But it was another little bonus to me, too, as I think about this, because I made this little connection in my study this week that I hadn't made before, and I think it's pretty astounding. The first Advent actually connects with Daniel and his story. This is some wonderful artwork that Joy and I got to see in Israel when we went to the Church of the Nativity. There's all this gorgeous artwork and some of the Byzantine art, which is made out of hammered copper and tin and polished brass. And there are so many reliefs and it's just everywhere. It boggles the mind. You could stand there for two hours and not see it all. And this is one of those things that looks like it's the three wise men, the three magi visiting Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men, magi, astrologers, sound familiar? From Eastern lands, AKA Persia, AKA Babylonia, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn King of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. That's from Matthew 2, 1 and 2. We're kind of familiar with these wise men, right? We three king of Orient are that kind of stuff. But here's something that makes our study of Daniel really intriguing to me, at least. I hope it's intriguing to you too. There's a New Testament word that we use really often 
And we use it so often that people almost think of it as Jesus' last name. What would we say? Jesus Christ. You think, oh, it's just Jesus Christ. That's his last name. But it wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. It wasn't part of the Christ family. It's a title. And it's a wonderful title. It comes from the Greek word Christos. And guess what Christos means? Okay, I'll tell you. It means anointed one. The anointed one. So you won't have to guess this one either, because I'm just going to tell you that there's a word that corresponds to this in the Old Testament that means anointed one, and it's called Masiach. M-A-S-I-A-C-H, Masiach. That's the word that corresponds with Christos in the New Testament. And if Masiach sounds familiar, it's because it should. Masiach is the word from which we get the word Messiah. And so Messiah, the anointed one, is pointing to Jesus the Christ, not Jesus Christ. Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the promised Messiah, the deliverer. So, Christ was a title, and this is the term Simon Peter used when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? I know what you're saying that all these other people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered in what is now known as the Great Confession, a statement of his belief in the identity of Jesus Christ. He said, you are the Masiach, the Christos, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And with these words, Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's the cool part. Are you ready? Lean closer. Listen, here it comes. We can connect the dots because the word Masiach in this sense is only used twice in the Old Testament. Now it's used in a different form. Sometimes if somebody is an agent of God and he says it puts his hand on him like he did with King Cyrus, even though Cyrus was not a believer in God or Yahweh, God still used Cyrus like his agent. He put his hand on him, used him as his right hand to deliver the Jews and send them back to their homeland. So that's that form of the word, but there's only two times when it's used in the form of the word that points to the promised anointed one. Psalm chapter two and drum roll please, Daniel 9.25. (laughs) So these magicians, these astrologers from the East who had been studying these writings and looking for a sign we're actually looking for the anointed one based on Old Testament prophecies, including this one. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's from Numbers 24 and from Daniel 9:25. So these magi are descendants of the same magicians that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were studying with and were involved with in revealing this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar II. These magi from the east In the Advent story, we're looking for Daniel's Messiah. Whoa, drop the mic. (laughs) I got chills when I saw the connection with that. And then we see this amazing reversal because when they had gotten to Jerusalem, you'll remember in the story, they went to King Herod because they thought, well, certainly a king should know where this other king is is about to be born. Let's go ask him. But like a lot of leaders, he had to ask the other people around him, his cabinet, so to speak. He had to ask his wise guys. So he gathered some of the wise people and the scribes and the teachers of the law around him to see if they knew of anything that would point to where this new Messiah was going to be born. And sure enough, they did. They knew something from Micah 5 too and said, oh yes, uh, the Old Testament shows us that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah in Judea. And they went, oh good, that's where we're going. And they followed the star. But check this out. 
the people who were given those words in the Old Testament, who knew them, didn't follow the Magi there to worship him. They had it. They had the truth. They knew about the truth of the Messiah, but they didn't worship the Messiah. The Magi, who were the descendants of these magicians, who really didn't know much, and they were worshiping pagan gods, and they weren't even believers in Yahweh, these descendants actually displayed more faith than the scribes and the Pharisees. What a reversal. We see that really quite a bit in the New Testament, this unusual reversal because it was the religious people who thought they had it all together. Their pride got the best of them, and they missed what God was revealing to them in their own midst through the person of Jesus Christ, even though Jesus was clearly fulfilling all the prophecies that they had studied about. So are we more like the Magi or like the scribes and the Pharisees? Do we study so that we can know knowledge and puff ourselves up because we're so knowledgeable and scholarly? Or do we study so that we can be transformed by this Messiah who wants to transform us to be more like him and to conform us into his image? That's the challenge. And that's what we're invited to do freely by the God who freely gave himself on our behalf so that we could enjoy this Holy Spirit transforming us every day of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing thing it is for me to look into your word and see so many connections to know that you have threaded this truth from beginning to end and that everything continues to point like a neon sign to Jesus Christ. Oh, and I ache for people to see it and to respond to it just like these magi did in the Advent story. And I pray that people would understand that with the praying people around them, helping them have the energy to point them in the right direction, that I just pray that their hearts would be softened, that they would open themselves to the truth from your word, that you are the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you so that when it comes their time to stand before you on judgment day, Jesus will put his arm around them and he'll say, they're with me. I've placed my righteousness on their shoulders. Let them in. I pray that this will be the case with so many because I desire more than anything else, lost people becoming found by a loving and gracious God. Thank you for being that kind of God for us, I pray. In Jesus' precious name.